For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? As you listen to this week's interview with English skipper and ocean plastics campaigner Emily Penn, her all-women round-the-world ex-expedition will be in full swing. Over two years and 38,000 nautical miles, a crew of 300 women are taking on 30 different voyage legs to sail through some of the densest ocean plastic accumulation zones on the planet. Why? to study this plastic pollution and to try to figure out not just its scope, but ways of turning off the tap, as Emily puts it. We need to tackle plastic pollution at its source, which means us and the industry that puts it there. Joining this epic ocean adventure are two friends of Wardrobe Crisis, actually. So Laura Wells, who was our very first guest back in 2017, and Fashion Revolution co-founder Carrie Summers, who will be on our show next week. You can follow the voyages via xexpedition.com, E-X-X-P-E-D-I-T-I-O-N.com. And you can find me, of course, on social media as usual. I'm at Mrs. Press on Instagram and Twitter. Let me know your thoughts. You know, I'd love to hear from you. And just a few other episode recommendations for more on this topic. I recommend you go back and listen to episodes 47 with Tim Silverwood and 57 with Ellen MacArthur. Now, let's dive in. See what I did there? Oh, God. Ocean puns. I'm sorry. <laughs> Emily Penn, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis Podcast. I'm so happy that you squeezed in this interview because you're very busy. You're about to sail off again. But we are recording this the day before World Maritime Day, and you're doing this press launch for your latest expedition. But by the time this airs, you will be at sea with a revolving crew of about 300 amazing women who will join you on different legs of this two-year round-the-world sailing voyage. And I will just say that one of those women is Fashion Revolution's co-founder, Carrie Summers, who we'll hear from next week. But Emily, tell us about this. What is Expedition? Absolutely. So we actually call it X-Expedition, emphasising the double X, which represents the X chromosomes that us women have. Get out. I didn't know. Yeah. Brilliant. (laughs) So that's where the name came from. Um, But X-Expedition, it's a series of all women sailing voyages, sailing to different parts of the world to really understand the impact of plastic and toxic pollution. Uh, Obviously, we are scaling up this year to set off around the world for two years And really, it's about understanding the scientific side of what's going on in our oceans and particularly trying to pinpoint where the solutions lie. It's about telling the stories through the eyes of these 300 women from different nationalities, from different skill sets and backgrounds. So what sort of walks of life do they come from? They're not all scientists. They're not at all. No, I think having spent a while studying this issue, one thing I really realise is we need everyone coming from every angle, approaching this problem with different skills. We need scientists, but we also need politicians. We need teachers. We need filmmakers and journalists and artists. And we need designers and industry leaders. And women, because hello, when you get a lot of women together, they can find solutions. They can. And that was actually the thing that surprised me the most on the first all-women's voyage I set up in 2014. I originally thought I was doing it for more scientific reasons that we'll go on to. 
But what I realised was the immense power of bringing 14 women together, hurling them on a boat, getting them all seasick, going across an ocean, and the bonds that are formed on these expeditions, they really carry you through life. And that was the thing that I wasn't expecting. And look, I don't want to be this woman who says, of course, men can't do these things. However, I often think if women ran the world, we would have more creative solutions and less conflict. And I just think actually for you to be bringing together female energy and all of this creative, positive activism behind a thorny problem like this is something really exciting. Absolutely. But that's not the only reason you're doing it. There's also a reason that this whole conversation around plastics, but also sailing and science is gendered. Talk us through that. Let's just talk about sailing crews in general, because that's all men, right? It often often is. Yeah, the first trip I took around the world um, when I was 21, it was with a team of of mostly men. Well, you shared, we're going to get into that, but you shared a cabin with like three Kiwi blokes or something, Exactly, yeah. But also often the scientists or the teams Mm -hmm. of scientists are mainly men. Absolutely. And, you know, it's good to see more women getting into marine biology um, and those sorts of subjects. But yeah, typically exploration, sailing, science, so many of the things that we're doing, they're traditionally all done by men. And often the papers are written by men when we look into the papers that are delving into the science behind plastic pollution or science in general. I mean, I know that that is changing, but we do have a problem of not enough women in STEM, right? We do. And um, as you say, I think it's changing. I sometimes feel like I'm so embedded in the movement that I then feel these amazing women all around me. Um, But I know if you take a step back and look at at the big picture, we still have a lot of work to do to get women into those STEM careers. You've obviously immersed yourself in the science and taught yourself a great deal, but you're not actually technically a scientist or have you had additional educational training? I haven't. I've learned everything from seeing and doing and surrounding myself by amazing experts on the issue and sitting next to them at 2am on night watch and saying, and then what? And then what? (laughs) And asking lots of questions and sort of self-teaching from reading scientific papers and going to conferences. So it is amazing the amount of knowledge that you can pick up. Did anyone ever say to you, but hang on, I'm not listening to you. Where's your authority? You're not a scientist. I haven't. I think because I've had so much first-hand experience and so few people, especially 10 years ago, had ever been to a gyre and seen what was out there and done the scientific work, that there was a different type of credibility that that gave me. There is another aspect to this which I had not been aware of, and that is the gendered aspect of the chemical pollution associated with plastic. Yeah, this was something that I discovered by chance, really. As I'd been out at sea, really looking at the plastics issue in the gyres, these accumulation zones, I realised that not only the plastic was breaking down into these tiny fragments, these microplastics, but also then when we caught fish, we found it in their stomachs as well. You have actually shared a picture during one of your TED Talks, and we'll share a link so you can have a look at this, but you're actually talking about visible chunks of plastic in the gut of the fish. Exactly. Yeah. Or in the stomach. So about the size of a fingernail. You can see it. Mm. You can see it, yeah. Along with obviously all the bits that you can't see. But what I also realised is that the fact that this plastic was getting into the food chain, as well as so many other chemicals that are either used in the production of plastic, like phthalates that make plastic flexible, or brominated compounds that make fabrics fire retardant, or fluorinated compounds that make them waterproof. All these really useful chemicals that end up either on our products or generally as waste in our ocean, there was a whole question around could they be getting into the food chain as well. So when I came back to land, I actually did a blood test 
to look at 35 of these banned toxic chemicals. And you said that you worked with the UN to decide which chemicals to look for. Exactly. So all of these chemicals are banned by the Rotterdam, Stockholm and Basel conventions that oversee these chemicals in the environment. So we've talked about this before in this podcast, POPs, persistent organic pollutants. Basically, they hang around in the environment and they're highly toxic and they have to some extent been phased out. But then you talk about flame retardants. I mean, we're drenching mattresses and furniture in this stuff. We do it in Australia for sure. Exactly. And it seems to be as soon as one gets banned, that has to be proven by scientists and funded by governments, the next one is ready to come out on the shelf. So you were tested. What do you mean? So I had a blood test and we tested for these 35 chemicals and we found 29 of these toxic chemicals in my blood. So in your body are traces and residues of these toxic chemicals that have been isolated by the UN as dangerous or toxic and to be avoided. And therefore banned. How did they get inside your body? It's a good question and actually a question that we'll never know the answer to. And we live, you know, obviously long lives where we're exposed to so many different things. Some of these chemicals might have been inside me before I was born because they were inside my mum. And most of them I probably picked up along the way. You can do a little bit of detective work. Um, one of the chemicals is a brominated compound, BDE-47, which may have come from my exposure to burning electronics in the South Pacific when I spent lots of time living in those islands. You also share some stories about some of your female crew members on previous expeditions, and there was one of them who had been eating fish that was contaminated with mercury on the, I don't know, come through the Amazon, right? She was, yeah. So she was working out on the Amazon just downstream from a lot of gold mining where they use mercury in that process. But how is all this related to ocean plastic? There is a connection, but there's also two separate issues at play. There is plastic pollution and there's toxic pollution. And they're both things that we're interested in and investigating. And they're both in the ocean. And they're both in the ocean, exactly. So they can be treated separately, um, for sure. There's also other ways those toxic chemicals get into us. We're not sure they're coming through the ocean. It might but be we know they are also ending up in the ocean. We do. It might be the pillow that I slept on as I grew up that had brominated it's compounds in it. Every time I get on a plane, I think I'm surrounded by this stuff. And a lot of places, it's actually law. I think in California, you can't rent out your apartment without having a sticker on all your furniture to say that uh, it's fireproof. But my first question was around why is this a particular problem for women? And also, if you could relate that back to your work in the ocean. Sure. So the reason I stumbled upon this is because I learned about how plastic is lipophilic, which means it acts like a magnet to other oil-based chemicals. And these POPs, these persistent organic pollutants, they're all oil-based. And so the question was, could they be absorbing a lot of these chemicals that are in the ocean and carrying them into the food chain? It's a theory which a lot of scientific research still needs to be done to really understand. In terms of the impact on women, when I then looked at these 29 chemicals that I have inside me, it turns out that some of them are carcinogens and lead to cancer, but most of them are endocrine disruptors. So what does that mean? An endocrine disruptor basically mimics a hormone and it blocks the sites in your body that the hormone, which is a chemical message coming from the brain, is supposed to connect with to be able to get that message across. So if those sites are blocked by these endocrine disruptors, then those important chemical messages can't move around our body. So for women during pregnancy, those hormones need to come at very specific times. And so it's obviously 
bad news to have anything getting in their way. And the same with puberty and development, um, but obviously particularly um, the development of a child inside the womb um, is critical. And then I went on to discover that actually the only way we can get rid of these persistent chemicals is through giving birth and through breastfeeding. But we actually pass them on then to our children. I feel like people listening to this will be really freaked out. Could you share potentially some further reading or links or places people might be able to go if they are worried about this, particularly if you're pregnant? I think it might be something that people worry about. Yeah, I mean, I think there is quite a lot of guidance out there Mm. for things like eating fish. I mean, and we're told not to eat tuna, for example, um, when we're pregnant because of the high levels of mercury. But mercury behaves in the same way as these other chemicals. It accumulates Mm. up the food chain, Mm. which is why tuna being quite near the top of the food chain, it's a big fish. We need to be particularly aware of avoiding. Whereas eating low in the food chain, you know, eating your anchovies and your sardines is a great way to get your protein, but without the kind of chemical buildup. It's so interesting, isn't it, just to look at the interconnectivity of all of these issues. Often when we're talking about the environment, people say to me, but you you have a fashion podcast, you talk about clothes. I say, well, no, actually, the whole thing is interconnected and that's how nature works. And the impacts from our consumption habits are felt in all areas of the environment, particularly the ocean. Absolutely. And the ocean, I think, is so amazing because it's this one thing and the switch from talking about oceans to actually this one ocean planet that we live on. It covers 70% of our planet and it's all connected. And so there's the interconnectedness of these issues, but actually often the ocean is the thing that does connect them all. Gosh, it's so important that we have healthy oceans, isn't it? It is. It's home to 90% of all living things on the planet. Is it? I've never heard that. It is, of our biomass, and actually over half of the oxygen and the air that we breathe comes from the ocean. Well, I did know that. I mean, you hear that and you realise that, of course, we must continue to focus on trees and we look at the Amazon and fire and we rightly freak out, but actually the ocean produces, I've heard before, four out of five of every breath that we take. It, exactly. There's a, it's sort of an unknown <laughs> exact science, but yeah, it's, it's a lot. Okay, before we get into your personal story, which I'm sure everyone is very, very interested to hear, I just want to talk a little bit about how expeditions function and what they actually do and how that's changed. I found this lovely story that was written about you, an interview with you. It was by a writer whose name is Joe Gallacher, and it ran in Recycling Waste World, which frankly, I would say is required reading just like Vogue. It begins, for years we have used our seas to discover new countries, cultures and aquatic species, yet modern sailing missions uncover a different story, one of plastic pollution, environmental damage and loss of marine life. What do you think about that? Ten years ago you're swimming off this boat in a remote part of the Pacific Ocean, you dive off and what do you see? I came up to find plastic fragments in my eye line on the surface and a toothbrush floating by. And at the time, we were... Do you remember that? I do. Because oh, I remember thinking, whose teeth did that brush? And, and how we're in did the middle it... of nowhere. It feels like that. Exactly. Well, we were. How far were you? 800 miles from land. And I saw that come by. In fact, the closest people to me were in the space station. Are you joking? No. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no one else around. No islands. And yet our debris is around. Exactly. And that's the question I ask every time I see a flip-flop or a cigarette lighter or a bottle top. And, and often things that, like a toothbrush or a comb that are so personal, they belong in our bathrooms. And, you know, they're things that have literally been, been in our mouths. How has it got that far away? And it does make you think because it, it connects us all to the problem. We've all got that plastic toothbrush, unless you have a bamboo one, mm-hmm. in which case the bristles are probably still plastic. 
Yes, they are. Well, it's the trouble with something biodegradable when you expose it to your bacteria every day. But how, it disappears. how did it make you feel seeing this stuff? To me, it just didn't make any sense. I think I thought of the Pacific as being this place of paradise. And I was going to find turquoise ocean and palm trees and white sand. And I did find all of that. But I just wasn't expecting to land on uninhabited islands and be ankle deep in plastic debris. Let me take you back as to how you got there in the first place. So you studied architecture at Cambridge University. You wanted to presumably build buildings. Absolutely. Now, buildings aren't an obvious link to adventure to me. Perhaps they are. What's the most adventurous building you've ever seen? (laughs) Oh, good question. So I was very inspired by the sort of psychological journey that you can go on when you go into a building, like Daniel Liebskind's Jewish Museum in Berlin. I've never been. So you go in and you get plunged downwards to the sort of basement of this museum and you feel like everything's kind of towering in. And then you go into um, this a garden and a tower of Holocaust and you feel, oh you really, really feel it. The concrete makes you cold. You hear distant sounds that your senses are struggling to kind of interpret, but you can't quite. And it really makes you feel dreadful. I was going to think that perhaps it was the environmental aspect of the built environment or the possibilities to agree in our built environments that attracted you, but you're talking about emotion. I am. It's about people and it's about psychology. And that was the thing that fascinated me in architecture, the way you could change the way someone thinks, feels and acts through their built environment. And I feel like my mission, you know, today, I'm always thinking about how you can shift the way someone thinks, feels and acts towards the environment. As part of your dissertation, you decided that you would go to China and visit this so-called or supposedly sustainable city. We'll talk about what you found, but let's talk about how you journeyed there. Well, I thought I couldn't really go to a zero carbon city by aeroplane. So I ended up taking a train and also a little bit of horse across the Mongolian plains and camel in the Gobi Desert, (laughs) but mostly train. (laughs) And it took five weeks to eventually then get to Shanghai. You're a renegade person. (laughs) I think for me, it was a big adventure when I was 19. I wasn't thinking too much about it, but it, it just made sense. It was the obvious thing to do. On this podcast, we talk often about slow fashion, but you're talking about slow travel. Absolutely. And I fell in love with it. And I suddenly thought, if I'd have taken a plane, I would have missed all of this. I would have missed that change in culture and climate and landscape. And most of all, the people who I got to meet all along the way and understand their culture and their different mindsets. It's fascinating and also acclimatising. Yes. And putting China, a place that I knew nothing about, into context to the UK, which is where I grew up. I love this idea of how slow can change our experience of something and can be I guess I'm thinking about it being gentler you know when you mm. get off the plane and people always whinge about jet lag which by the way I don't have I seem to be genetically predisposed to oh, no such wow. thing never had it. <laughs> I always think people have made it up Soz. <laughs> but that thing that you it's discombobulating you can just get off a plane and you're in a different place you have no idea where you are absolutely and um yeah the culture shock climate shock jet lag I think they're real things. I can't believe you don't get it. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's absolutely something that I think is so unnatural. And traveling at a more human pace, um, you get to take it all in. You get to really consolidate what you've just done and what you've just seen. And you get to mentally prepare yourself for what you've got coming up next. 
And I spent three and a half years then traveling around the world without planes. But hang on a minute, you arrived at this um, <laughs> green city, but it wasn't even built. It wasn't, no. So I got all the way there. And Where was it? It was called Dong Tang, and it was supposed to be being built on an island off Shanghai. And um, lots of plans, uh, but not even a bridge to get there. I did manage to get a boat ride out to go and have a look at the proposed development site. If you had just flown there and found that, it would have been really disappointing. But your experience was an adventure. I'm going to call this slow adventure. Yeah. Not two words you would normally put together. No, but absolutely. Then after that, you had an Australian connection. Absolutely. So I lined up my first job in Australia. I'd always been interested and excited to visit the South Pacific. So I thought, go and live in Australia for a year and get to know it. But after that experience going to Shanghai, I thought... I want to see everything between England and Australia. I don't want to be an architect in an office. (laughs) Well, I still thought I wanted to be an architect in the office at the other end, but I definitely thought I wanted to have an adventure getting there. And so I ended up taking this boat from England (laughs) to Australia to the job. I'm laughing because it is the most bonkers, bananas, ridiculous looking (laughs) vessel I've ever seen. And we will share a link. (laughs) Yeah. Earth race, run on 100% biodiesel, but a wave piercer. So looks like a space rocket. And, um, but it looks silver. Like, what is it made of? I mean, it looks like it's, a freak. It's carbon fibre and it's painted to make it look like a Mercedes vehicle. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it's sort of state-of-the-art design. When you say biofuel, what does that mean? It's fuel that's come from a renewable source rather than a fossil fuel. Vegetable oil? Exactly, or anything else. So there's hundreds of sources of biofuel. You can make it from, so it's any kind of oil. So waste cooking oils is actually mostly what we ran on but also waste animal fats from an abattoir. You know, they can Get turn that out, in. really? Yeah. In fact, the founder of the project had liposuction just for a bit of a media stunt. To use and, the and fat? Used- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he was too skinny, though, so we didn't get very far. Wow. But really just to demonstrate that we need to open <laughs> our minds <laughs> as to all the places that our fuel can come from. But also, let's face it, this boat got there, so it works. It works. It's coconut oil. It's all sorts of things. The key is that it needs to be renewable and also something that's already used. So you can grow biofuel. You can grow soybeans, you can grow canola, but then you end up taking down rainforests to grow fuel or displacing local food There's crops. never an easy answer to this. No. So and I don't think we can harvest enough liposuction fat to be able to fuel this boat. <laughs> sorry to put that in your minds. I'm really sorry. How long did it take you to get to Australia? It took six months, but I ended up spending another six months then on board uh, to finish the project. And before we began, I said that you shared that cabin with a bunch of Kiwi blokes. I've seen a picture of that cabin. It's basically a few bunk beds crammed into a tiny space. It was absolutely tiny. The widest point, I could touch the walls with my hands at the same time. It was just a little capsule. And you enjoyed this? I loved it. (laughs) And I actually remember being asked, you know, don't you feel so claustrophobic? And I was taking off around the world, age 21, with a bunch of people who'd grown up in a completely different way to me. And I remember thinking it was the most open-minded space I could imagine and literally so far away from claustrophobic. Where did you grow up? What were your parents like? Were they adventurers and explorers? I grew up in South Wales in the same house my whole life till I went off to university. And my parents were definitely very connected to nature and the environment. I was the kind of geeky kid at school that had to show up at friends' birthday parties with beetroot with the stalks still attached instead of a box of 
chocolates or a bag of crisps they like were, everyone did else. they grow everything in the garden? They did. So we had an allotment. We grew everything in the garden. We had chickens despite living in the middle of a town. So always very kind of connected to the natural world. What did they do? They actually, dad was an IT consultant and mum was a school teacher while I grew up. But they met in the South Pacific. Oh, really? On a boat. Really? Yes. So they had uh, amazing 20s experiences before settling down in South Wales. Okay, let's take you to the South Pacific. At the end of your adventure, you went to live in Tonga. I did. This is a place that I had passed through and seen the plastics issue, partly washing up, but mostly the pressures of collapsed fisheries, meaning there was nothing left to catch, and rising sea meaning levels. overfishing from massive commercial vessels, which exactly. means that locals can't actually catch yeah. their dinner anymore. Nothing left And so them. they're buying a lot of plastic commercially wrapped and produced processed food. Exactly. Oh, God. And compounded by the fact that the rising sea levels meant that so many of their taro land, where they would grow their starchy root crops, was so salty. They couldn't really? grow it anymore. For anyone who is an Australian listener to this podcast, this is on our doorstep. We need to be taking action to protect these lands and to make sure that people can live dignified lives where they can feed themselves and their families. Exactly. What else did you... So, you, But you stayed there for quite a long time. You stayed yeah, for six months or something. I did. I wasn't intending to. I thought I could go and help lead a clean-up based beach, on what I'd seen. A plastic clean-up off the plastic, beach. Plastic, but also the other thing I was seeing a lot of were computer electronics. In fact, one of the moments when I first got to Tonga... I saw a group of schoolboys, essentially, had dug a hole and they were about to bury a whole load of computers. What? That, what? Because there's no, no waste were broken. collection? There's no waste collection. And these were actually computers that had been sent from Australia and New Zealand as aid donations that didn't work. And so I remember thinking, I don't know what the answer is, but I know burying these computers is not underground the on a 10 foot island is not the answer. So you started a beach cleanup. It became a giant beach it cleanup. Did. You had 3,000 people. We did. Isn't so that like everyone who lives there? Everyone who could have walked, yes. <laughs> Anyone that was old enough or young enough uh, was out on the beach that day. And it was beach, but it was also inland, in the bush, because there was no waste management. The whole island, which is only half a mile wide, mm. you know, so very coastal, but the whole island was just full, full of rubbish. How much trash did you pick up? 56 tonnes. What does that look like? Eight shipping containers. Oh, God. Yeah. What do you do with it? So we, it took us weeks to clean it and sort it and package it into 3,000 rubbish sacks. Oh, my goodness. And Did you some, just do this on, obviously you did it in community, but was this your idea? Yes, and in collaboration with Sustainable Coastlines, a New Zealand-based charity. Okay. So they helped with a lot of the logistics, but it was very much really just two of us, me and Tonga, someone else in New Zealand, Making it happen. You know, it was the early days of what's now a charity that's set up and running in mm. New Zealand. So you stayed there for six months. Where do you live? At first, in a hammock on the beach. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. How long do you live in a hammock for? <laughs> the first week or so. And washed in the ocean every day. I I'm mean, presuming you're not an overpacker like me when no. I travel. <laughs> and at this point, I had no idea I was even going to end up there. Now we can talk about clothes just briefly. Yes. What do you pack? Yeah, well, actually, the, what I was just going to say about clothes was um, the thing I wasn't expecting was the conservative nature of these little Pacific islands. Um, mostly because I wasn't planning to go and live for six months and teach in schools and work with the government in Tonga. So actually, when I got there, the first thing I had to do with my sisters, who I then ended up living with, one of the local families took me in and they had seven daughters around the same age as How me. Fab. It was amazing. And so I slept basically on a mat with a mosquito net 
on the floor with everybody else. But did they lend you their clothes? Well, yes. So we actually made me some skirts when I got I'm there. Clapping <laughs> yeah. like a naff nerd because that's really nice. It was lovely. So we picked the fabrics and they helped me because obviously, you know, I hadn't never sewed anything in my life apart from in design tech when I was 14 and um, so they they helped me you know put some clothes together so that I could go and do my first day teaching in the schools and be in the proper dress incredible that's such a lovely story <laughs> are they still your sisters it's been hard to keep in touch we didn't have any communications on that island it's there is some now what's the but, island called um so these are the Harpai Islands in Tonga it wasn't just the plastic or the computer parts that you noticed polluting visually the beaches, but you also noticed a smell. I did. And sometimes we could smell these islands before we could see them. What kind of smell? Distinctively toxic. And it's the smell of burning plastic. So if you've ever burned plastic, you'll know what I mean by distinctly toxic because it just doesn't smell right. It's not wood burning. It just smells off. And that was the smell coming from every single island that we went to. Because there was no waste management, the only thing you could do was put it in a burn pile or throw it in the ocean. And let's just think about what happened before this plastic deluge basically swamped the world. Because you used to be able to burn your whatever it was, bits of coconut, whatever was organic rubbish would either melt away into the ground and become part of the nutrient cycle. Or perhaps you could burn it and it would be fine. But burning plastic is not fine. Exactly. And it's that shift that, you know, the sudden introduction of this new material plastic into everywhere really in the world. And when there's no then waste management system to deal with it, the same ways as before, which was thrown into the ocean or burn it, as just still used. Mm. Um, so it, it comes back again to a shift in mindset, a shift in thinking. I also think that when we talk about plastic, one of the famous or oft quoted lines is there is no away and I've certainly said myself that every piece of plastic ever produced is in existence in some form somewhere not if you burnt it that's the bit we don't talk about isn't it yeah so the plastic doesn't exist but you've turned it into other nasty things so it's carbon dioxide and in fact actually carbon dioxide is almost the best thing that can come of it it leads to as we know it's a greenhouse gas you know it, it's doing other things to our planet but the worst things that it then forms is something like a dioxin, which is if you burn something in a backyard setting rather than an incinerator, which puts in extra heat and extra oxygen to fully combust into carbon dioxide. So and if water, you just chuck it on the fire in the backyard, exactly, put a match to it, you then get this incomplete combustion. And that's when the, a lots of these nasty chemicals form, like dioxins, which was actually one of the chemicals I tested for um, in my blood because it's a carcinogen. And, and hang on, let's take a moment to consider if we were to test the blood of those kids who are basically standing by that fire. That's just another example of one of these stories that's terrifying. When we talk about loss of biodiversity in the climate crisis, that's terrifying. When we talk about kids breathing in this plastic that's being burnt, it's terrifying. When we see some of the pictures that you've shared about rivers clogged with plastic in Indonesia and you see it's really close to the shore and you know where it's headed, that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about solutions. I mean, you've got 300 women coming on this two-year fact-finding mission, but it has to be about more than just collecting all the misery, right? Absolutely. Where do you find hope? Yeah, we, there seems to be three phases of every expedition. The first one is getting used to being on board, usually involves being seasick, and really feeling the intensity of the ocean, which is often pretty full-on. The second is then experiencing the plastic, which, as, as you say, is, is pretty miserable. But the third and most important part of the trip is building up from there. The optimism, but also the plans. What are we going to do about this when we get home? And that 
obviously is brought together by the fact that these women are the ones that really continue the legacy of X Expedition. And, you know, I'm such a strong believer that you really need to see it to understand it. So they see the problem, realize that actually these bits of plastic are tiny and they're so hard to separate from marine life. I mean, if you sit there looking down a microscope, trying to dissect a sample, it really hits home. Well, I saw one of your images, which I have never seen the like of before, which basically showed plastic and plankton and you can't tell the difference. You can't. No. And that's looking down a microscope. I mean, how are the fish supposed to figure it out? So you realise that it's small, it's ingrained in the marine life, and also that there's this huge discrepancy in the amount of plastic going into the ocean versus what we're actually now finding on the surface. So you talk about, you told me before about it sinking, and I had never heard this. And that's really what we expect is happening. The real answer is we don't know, but we know that it's going somewhere. So, they so could, what you're saying is there could be loads more, loads more in the big deep that we haven't even ever exactly. explored. We've got 8 million tonnes of plastic going into the ocean every year, but we can only find a quarter of a million tonnes on the surface. So the big question is where's the rest of it going? Some of the answers might be we know some is getting ingested, but by no means in that quantity. We know some is actually so small that it's been passing through our nets. We sample down to a third of a millimeter traditionally, but now we're sampling down to five micron because now we realize it's getting smaller and smaller. And now I'm talking about numbers that you can't even see and even a microscope can't even see that small. So we're investigating whether it's just so, so much smaller that we haven't been measuring it. But the big answer is it's most likely sinking. And we know that when plastic gets coated in algae, it then becomes negatively buoyant um, and starts to sink and also when the air bubbles are kind of worked out of it like polystyrene for example once all the air has come out and it's broken into little bits it then will also sink so you um, said the second phase is immersing yourself in this knowledge and seeing it firsthand what you can see but this is not a story of hope emily help yes so by understanding the problem we're much better equipped to figure out the solutions because all of that understanding informs us that actually trying to clean up plastic microfibers, microbeads, these tiny pieces that are now probably all on the seabed is almost an impossible task. And the real opportunity we have right now is to work at the source, work here on land as far upstream as we possibly can. You talk about turning off the tap. Exactly. Stop that plastic getting into the ocean, but better still, stop it being made and used in the first place. And the good news here is that while there's not one solution, there are hundreds. And this is where we all have a role to play. And there's something that all of us can do. And so beyond our own reduction of single-use plastic, which is the messaging we're hearing again and again at the moment, it's about saying, what's my expertise? In X Expedition, we call them superpowers. What am I brilliant at? How can I use that skill to make a unique difference on this cause. So you're looking for the intersection point between plastic pollution and your superpower, and that's the sweet spot. And so we then spend the last week of these voyages really working with all the crew members on their unique skills and the unique opportunity they have when they go back home. What sphere of influence do they have that they can create that change? And it's amazing. I'm yet to meet anyone on planet Earth that I haven't found that sweet spot with because we all have one. Ah, oh, that is the best note to end on. Now it's-
melting hot My parents feel that this is a waste of time I don't go away cause everything is just fine My friends don't feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you